The Pat Kenny Show with Aviva Insurance. Weekdays at 9am on News Talk. Now, Ian Bailey, the self identified chief suspect in the Sophie Toscan de Plantier murder, died suddenly yesterday. Uh, Ian Bailey always denied any involvement in the case. And in a moment, we'll be talking to Ralph Regal, Southern correspondent with the Irish Independent. But first of all, this on St. Valentine's Day in 1997, I spoke to Ian Bailey just a few days after his initial arrest. They took a hair sample from me on New Year's Day, uh, nearly seven weeks ago now. Um, I gave my hair quite willingly because uh, the Gardaí had let it be known that there was hair found in the hand of the dead woman. But of all the people in West Cork, why would they pick on you to well, give they a Well, they pick on me um, individually. They took hair from a number of other people, um, at least eight people to my knowledge, a number of them women. There have been uh, reports that you had suffered some facial and hand injuries. Yes, I, I, yes I've heard that too. And... Um, it, it, it's it's quite interesting. On the Sunday before, which was the 22nd, um, down here uh, in, in West Cork, we we, um, we grow our own turkeys, and uh, it was my job to to kill three turkeys for the Christmas table. Mm-hmm. And that's how you got your injuries. Well, I got a little bit of scratching and s- certainly some blood on me, um, but then I cut down a Christmas tree and um, had more scratches from doing that. So that was Ian Bailey talking to me on St. Valentine's Day in 1997, a few days after his initial arrest. Uh, Ralph Regal is on the line. Ralph, good morning. Good morning, Pat. Uh, I suppose the, the people who say we'll never know the truth now that Ian Bailey has died, but Ian Bailey insisted upon his innocence all those years, and that never looked as if it was going to change. So in a sense, nothing changes. No, that's correct, Pat. Um, ultimately, you have the French courts, which found him guilty of uh, Sophie Toscan de Plantier's killing on December the 23rd, 1996. That followed a one-week trial in May of 2019. But really, from the very beginning, Ian Bailey protested his innocence. He said he had nothing to, to do with this. And the case file went from the Guardi to the DPP. The DPP sent the file back to the guards with a number of questions the file was returned to the DPP and then in 2000, 2001, the Director of Public Prosecution said there was insufficient evidence for a charge and that there would be no further proceedings. And I think the death of Ian Bailey is the one thing that I think the French family did not want to see. They wanted to see what would happen with the cold case review. Now, that while that will continue, I think it's worth pointing out that Ian Bailey was the central figure both in the Garda murder investigation and in the cold case review. Um, Ian Bailey uh, acknowledged that he was uh, the chief suspect, but any cold case review, and and, uh, we've all turned into amateur sleuths watching the two television documentaries uh, and listening to the West Cork podcast, where you have conflicting uh, versions of events. We're all trying to make up our minds uh, as to what might have happened. However... I mean, the trail is absolutely cold. If it were anyone else other than the chief suspect, chief suspect for the French, for the Gardaí, also acknowledged by Ian Bailey that he was the chief suspect. If there are any other suspects in the frame, all the evidence is long gone. Yeah, I think that's that's a fair fair point, Pat. I mean, you're talking almost 27 years ago. Uh, I mean, a lot of the key witnesses are deceased. Um, a lot of the guards that were actually involved in the original investigation are deceased. 
Uh, you have, you know, the degradation of evidence over the years, uh, people's memories. So it, it certainly is a very, I mean, unlike other cold case reviews where, you know, forensic evidence had been kept and stored and breakthroughs in technology had allowed for a significant development in the case. Um, on, we're, we're hoping, uh, waiting for um, DNA testing results to come back for some kind of an indication, but there doesn't appear to be any breakthrough of that type likely in this particular case. So I think the very fact that, that Mr. Bailey has passed away, you know, it doesn't mark the end of the story, but I think it certainly marks the beginning of the end phase. I remember uh, some of the detail from the documentaries off the top of my head, you know, his big long black coat, was it burned or was it not? And then there was evidence of him after it was allegedly burned. There he was wearing the long black coat. Did he have two coats, a gate yeah. that uh, may have had some evidential uh, significance uh, missing, um, all sorts of stuff. I mean, I- I'm trying to grapple with what the, the guard they could do uh, if fundamental evidence is is no longer there and many people are deceased are they hoping that somebody who knows something will give them some information that uh, has not heretofore been forthcoming but might be because key people are now deceased I think that's one one element of what the Guardi are hoping for. I mean, th- they had a press conference uh, last December, 12 months in West Cork, and that was very much one of the things that they were saying, Pat, was that people who may not have been, who may not have felt they could talk to the Guardi in 96, 97, 98, that circumstances may have changed and that those individuals may feel that they're in a position in their lives where they can supply information to detectives. I think that still holds true for the Gardaí. Um, whether Ian Bailey's death changes things in respect of that, I don't know. But I think that's certainly one of the hopes for Gardaí. But I mean, it is just an extraordinary case. I mean, I, I've never, ever come across a case that has as many twists and turns in it over the years or as many contradictions. I mean, as you spoke about Ian Bailey, I mean, he had always protested his innocence. But the contradictions within the man, on on the one hand, he took an action in 2003 against eight Irish and British newspapers for defamation, claiming that they had branded him as the murderer. And he spoke about how his life had been ruined by press intrusion. And yet, over the years, I have never come across anyone who was as media friendly. Um, Ian Bailey, if he didn't take a phone call from you immediately, he would ring you back almost within a couple of hours. Um, he had a number of heart attacks last year. He was actually giving radio interviews, television interviews from his hospital bed. Um, at one point, he even supplied a photograph of himself uh, in the hospital. Uh, he could be incredibly polite. He could be quite charming when it suited him. But yet we're also aware that this is a man that had a history of incredible and horrific violence against women. So there are so many contradictions within the man himself and so many twists and turns within the case. Um, I presume that the the Gardaí will want to interview his uh, former partner, Jules, yet again. Perhaps they have done so, but um, circumstances might change given Ian Bailey's demise. Yeah, actually, Jules Thomas, she gave a very interesting interview last night uh, to Isabel Conway, a journalist based here in Cork. And she said that while she was sad at the, the death of Ian Bailey, it didn't really mean anything to her because she had emotionally moved on from him. Of course, they were in a relationship for almost 30 years and they split up in March of 2021. But I thought the interesting point that she made, which was also a point that was made by um, his solicitor, Frank Bottomer, was that both of them said that 
being consistently and in their view wrongly associated with the the killing of Sophie Toscan de Plantier, it had an impact on his health. Now, Mr. Bottomer said that he felt the state had a responsibility for that, that Ian Bailey was never out of the state spotlight in terms of the focus on this particular case and that it had an impact on his health. And just to say from a personal point of view, he, the last couple of years, you could see the physical toll that was taken on him. Uh, he was convicted of drug dr- driving about two years ago. And he appeared on appeal before Clonakilty District Court last year. And I remember a couple of reporters were there and we turned to each other and we were actually shocked by his appearance. Um, I remember him from, from the 90s, early noughties, the tall, raven-haired man. He had the look of a Shakespearean lead actor. And to see him now, he was stooped, he was haggard, he was gaunt. He was wearing open-toed Moses sandals without socks, and he really looked quite an ill man. So, you know, while his his death certainly shocked some people, I don't think it shocked a lot of people who had seen him and the deterioration in him, the physical deterioration in him over the last couple of years. Now, his only source of income was uh, the sale of uh, wood carvings and poetry books. That's right, Pat. He wrote two poetry books. He wrote The West Cork Way and a book called The John Wayne State of Mind. And he would attend farmer's markets across West Cork. And there was a time when he would sell um, home produce at these. But over latter years, it was wood carvings and his poetry books. And that was really his primary source of income. And unusually, people would come up to him and would sometimes look for a photograph. And he would agree to a photograph if someone bought one of his poetry books. And in one extraordinary kind of development, a friend of mine bought one of the poetry books and said it to me. When they opened the poetry book, he had not only signed it, but he'd actually put his mobile phone number in it as well. So again, the contradictions within the man, on the one hand, complaining that his life was a torture, that he'd been bonfired by the constant uh, focus on him, wrongly associating him with the crime. And yet he was also the type of individual that seemed to revel in this type of spotlight. I mean, he dressed very distinctively over the years. He would wear a tall hat, sometimes with a feather from it. He'd also wear one of these Siberian trapper hats. One of the most iconic photographs taken of him was of him wearing that kind of Siberian trapper hat. But he certainly dressed as if he wanted people to look at him. And he's a man that certainly reveled in the limelight at times. Uh, The the question of why he stayed in West Cork, I, I mean, on the one hand, We know that uh, his extradition to uh, France was denied by the state uh, because of the uncertainty about the nature of the trial and so on and so forth. Uh, And also the state had deemed he had no uh, case to answer. There was insufficient evidence to bring him to trial in Ireland. Um, But had he gone to the UK, might he been successfully extradited to France? That was his fear, Pat. Of course, the French had tried on three separate occasions since 2010 to have Ian Bailey extradited. Uh, The first two occurred before the the Paris trial in May of 2019, and the third and final extradition attempt occurred afterwards when the French were basically looking for someone that they considered to be a convicted murderer to be returned to France. Um, Now, Ian Bailey had always maintained that he was afraid to leave Ireland, that he was trapped here, because he said if he left Ireland, he felt that he would be subject to this European arrest warrant. And even though he was uh, a UK national, he was born in Manchester, he was brought up in Gloucester, he feared that had he returned to England, 
he would have been subject to the threat of this European arrest warrant to the point even where one of his parents died, he would not travel back to England to attend the funeral for fear of possible arrest. And the final question, I mean, many people believe Ian Bailey was guilty. Many other people believe that, no, he did not commit this terrible crime. If someday his reputation is vindicated, what will have happened over the last 20 years would amount, would have amounted to a terrible persecution of a man. Well, undoubtedly, Pat. I mean, I, it certainly, uh, I think no matter what way you look at this, it is an awful, awful story. It's an awful story for the French family of Sophie Toscan de Plantier, who never saw justice done for one of the most horrific murders that we've ever seen committed on this island. And from Ian Bailey's point of view, I mean, if he was, as he consistently protested, an innocent man, then really his life was a torture, as he had claimed. I know he himself said that he knew that there were people out there who could vindicate him. But he said that those devils were determined to try and have him bonfired. And they were his own words. Ralph Regal, Southern correspondent with the Irish Independent. Thank you very much for joining us. The Pat Kenny Show with Aviva Insurance. Weekdays at 9am on News Talk.